Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Discover 901, where today we sat down with Chef Kanal Jadhav, who is not just a business executive, but he also shares his talent for cooking by raising money with a charity that he started called Cooking for a Cause. Enjoy. All right, everybody, we are live at Station 8 Productions. I am super excited to be here with this gentleman today. Uh, this is Chef Kanal Jadhav. You are Chef Kanal Jadhav, but you're a man of many talents. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm doing great. Thank you so much, Brett. Appreciate you guys having me over at yeah, Station 8. Absolutely. We've had a chance to work with you. We started back in, gosh, I guess we met in like March or April, mm-hmm. um, we came out, we worked with, together on the Memphis Mushroom Festival event, which I'm sure we'll discuss a little bit later. Uh, we did some great things together. We got to go and, and see what you had going on at the Cove with the pop-up, all of which we'll be discussing today. I feel like there's a plethora of things to go through <laughs> and discuss, but I've been really excited to talk to you because just in the brief discussion that we had at the Cove that night that we met up and kind of talked, um, your history is rich. You know, Your inspirations are pure and the way that you're putting yourself out there is exactly what we're trying to capture with the Discover 901 you know, uh, chapters, if you will. And really excited to be to be sharing it with you. So um, we should go in and just kind of like, you know, start at the beginning. So we're emphasizing today, kind of, um, you know, your journey here in, in Memphis and all that you've done. So how did you, how did you get here? Let's start like back back there. How'd you get to to Memphis? So Memphis was a uh, sort of an accident. I was originally uh, living in New York when I finished my undergrad and I finished my grad school, I came here on a consulting basis. So I was in New York and working out there. uh, And then I decided that I would try and open up my options. So I was given an opportunity to come for three days to conduct a seminar at FedEx in Memphis, Tennessee. And I didn't know anything about Memphis other than Elvis Presley and uh, soul music. So I was here for three days and I guess 18 years later, (laughs) I'm still here, but came here just to consult with FedEx. Uh, for a small seminar and then one thing led to another then I began consulting with FedEx and then I decided to join FedEx and then I've been with the company uh, for about uh, 16 years now. That's incredible. I mean, I have to say we're here to talk about chefing, but you know, it's interesting that your background is in consulting in New York and now <laughs> FedEx. Those are not um, subtle brands, if you will. So how, how did the consulting begin for you? A lot of hard work. Wow. A lot of hard work and a lot of focus on getting into, uh, you know, globally uh, meaningful ventures. And uh, always, you know, living in India, you're so enamored by the rest of the world. And you're always looking out to see what, what would it be like living in the United States? What would Singapore look like? What would, you know, Norway be? And one of the ways, if you follow that passion, is to really get into consulting. And I did the kind of classic, do your chemical engineering, do your MBA, and get into a good corporate job, and then try and ensure that your position and your training and your outlook is global. And then when you're so well positioned in that, then they send you on consulting gigs all over the world. So I did a lot of gigs in Europe as well. In fact, that was a serious option at one time to consider as a base, but Something about the United States just attracted me here. The work ethic, the people, the language, the food. So that's how I kind of started to kind of veer more towards looking at United States as a, as a, as a destination to live and hopefully uh, stay here for a long time. Yeah, I mean, that global perspective, I feel like that probably influences a lot of what you do, especially with food. So, I mean, was that something that was kind of always inherent in you to just see things on a, on a larger scale and how things work together or what, how did it come about? I think it's, uh, you know, just from a philosophical perspective, it is acceptance and understanding that there is good in everything in a lot of cultures, what we provide and give. Our job is to accept and our job is to appreciate and take it for what it is. And that's how I think food became a big part of my life. Globally, I mean, we were in an Indian community, but I, my, one of my first food memory, which uh, you won't believe, is, is uh, salami. It's so weird. Of course, they used to call it chicken because uh, I, I couldn't say salami. So <laughs> I began enjoying. That was my first one of my first food memories. So you can tell r- right from there, it's a very exposed culture that I was blessed to grow up with. Uh, foods from different parts of the world were part of our weekly 
cuisine. We ate, you know, we made pasta. We had French food. We had, uh, uh, you know, food from England. We had food from all over. So I just felt ready, you know. Yeah, I mean, you have such a diverse experience with food. I do find it interesting that Memphis was the place that you finally were content and were able to land with in total confidence. Um, I think when we spoke that night, one of your quotes was the slab of ribs uh, slayed you. Yeah, they did. <laughs> so, like, how is that? Was it the food really that maybe captivated you at first when you came here and with FedEx and all the opportunity? Maybe was one thing, but yeah. I have to believe that food was a very a big, big factor. Part. Yeah, I mean, I was in New York and I absolutely enjoyed multicultural cuisines. Go to one part of uh, Central Park, you get Argentinian food. You go to another end, you get Brazilian food, so on and so forth. But I think what I could not connect to is. Uh, you know, how the, the soul that it was made up with. And when I came to Memphis and uh, started having the local cuisine and the local food, I really felt like they were talking to me. And it was more than just perfectly plated food at, you know, high price points. It was more language, more communication. So I felt like I was having a dialogue. And that's what I liked about Memphis. I began as a volunteer to a lot of the local Memphis barbecue competitions. And as a volunteer, I was fed scraps, and even those scraps were the best I've ever had. Then I became a judge and began judging Memphis competitions. Oh, wow. So they trusted your palate. They did, because I was working, and while as, as, as a volunteer, you accompany a judge. And once in a while, the judge asks you, what do you think? And then you say, well, this is what happened, and this is what... And they mm. look at me, is like, well, if you can decompose those flavors, you really need to think about actually judging. It's quite an intense process. You have a seminar that you have to attend. You have an exam that you have to give. You have to absolutely hit some minimums. And uh, it's quite an intimidating process. Walking yeah. into someone's barbecue tent, they've spent $10,000, $20,000. You have to be at your best. So help me really appreciate the Memphis style of food and the sincerity at which they went with it and the passion that they put was really one of the big things I liked about Memphis yeah. and the people behind it. At the end of the day, food doesn't make itself. It's people that are going to make the food and have a logic and have an ethic. Without those people and that passion, the city is nothing. So while we just eat, we don't often, we forget about the people behind it that making that food. If you connect with the food, the likelihood of you to connect with the people, extremely high, which is what happened. Mm -hmm. The likelihood for you to come, you know, feel at one with the community is then naturally there. And then that's how I'm here. Um, I don't see myself in, in anywhere else. Uh, I just will miss the people here if I'm not here. So absolutely. Memphis and the people behind the scenes really what more than the food actually. Yeah. Well, I mean, you've blended right in. I feel everybody has been highly receptive to you and, you know, not, not just you, but the food that you're, you know, part of and the things that you do. And there's a lot to discuss there. I think, um, one thing that would be, you know, more than appropriate would be to talk about where it began for you, because that night, again, that we kind of had a preliminary discussion, uh, you shared with me briefly some of your, your life story and life history and kind of how things began. And I find it incredibly fascinating and relevant to why we're talking today. So I think, was it four years old that you? <laughs> eight. Eight. Okay. Okay. I was eight. I got excited. <clears throat> I, I could barely reach the stove and I was making ramen. Ramen was my first thing I ever made. But I think everyone is likes their ramen to some degree or some type of flavor. Yeah. We can all connect and agree with that. It was an exciting time. Ramen was being introduced to India for the first time in a in a really popular way. So every all of us got free packets of ramen. I could not wait to go back and try it out. And there was nobody there at home. I have a single mom who used to work. So naturally it was left to me. So that's how it began. So thank you, Maggie. That's mom. No, Maggie is the ramen. <laughs> oh, okay. I was like, I was like, wait a minute. Okay. Um, so yeah. So you, you, I remember you saying that you basically at eight, you know, you're, you would come home and you had basically, you know, a, a full cabinet of spices and a lot of opportunity. How did you start? Was it just ramen and it evolved from there? Or how did it, it was about? ramen and involved from there. I mean, I just about made, it edible enough for me to eat, but then kind of piqued my interest. And then I began observing what my mom and my grandmother used to cook and observing what are the spices. So it was, it was a very, very large cabinet of spices. Um, <laughs> Top so, shelf spices uh, only, I'm sure. Yes. They obsess <laughs> about it. Um, and I think the thing was how they navigate around it and you cook with what you have. 
you really don't have a much huge pre-planned menu that you just have five ingredients that you're just readily available. India is a shop a day culture, which is also very similar to Europe. You shop for the day. Hmm. You shop what you eat for that day. So there was a it was an experience, right? You 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 go to the market, you get something that you like and you feel is feels right. You bring it back, you look at your spice cabinet and you think through what is it that you can make. And then you just begin and the techniques that are used are solid, almost as solid as a French cooking technique. But then I observed a lot of observation, watching what they did, how they made it. And then after you consumed it, you connected with the whole process because, you know, she did this and that and that and that's how this tastes. Don't like this much, but boy, do you like this. So then you start learning and then you just go from there. So one thing led to another and then began preparing full meals by the time I was uh, maybe 16, 17. And was quite popular with my family because of that. <laughs> I'm sure. I mean, I definitely was not cooking. I, I can barely cook now sometimes, I feel like. But starting at eight years old, I feel like there has to be some level of influence and also just feelings of independence maybe that came from that experience. Had to be. I mean, it was, was mom involved? I mean, you said single mom. Does that mean she was at work and you were doing the cooking for yourself when you came home? It was or? more around, you know, it began with, you know, coming home and wanting to eat something and making a snack. So preparing a snack, whereas my food journey began. Hmm. And from there, it got more involved. So yeah, absolutely. I mean, I love the independence of being able to survive on my own with whatever is available to me. I didn't have like a blank check when I was 12 to go purchase lobster or caviar and cook with it. I literally had to pretty much just use what I had and make it taste really good because there would be other people who try it and I didn't want them to feel bad about what they're eating. So food critiques, there are 1.6 billion food critiques in India. Oh, wow. (laughs) Everyone is a food critic. Right, right. So everyone has an opinion on how it needs to be made. So there is a lot of awareness about your food in India. I think it's pretty serious too, right? It is very serious. It is extremely serious. It's not just what you prepare, how you prepare, how you eat. It's quite an involved process. And uh, there are traditions in the North that are frowned upon by the South. There are traditions in the South that are frowned upon in the North. So you're aware. You're very aware. Is that like sweet tea and unsweet tea here? A bit. I'm just kidding. Well, there is no... I don't know if there's anything called unsweet tea. Uh, Well, up North, they don't have sweet tea. You go go to New York, you know, sweet tea. I know. I I just can't believe there's anything (laughs) such as unsweet tea because there's only one way to have tea, okay? I am glad that you believe that. Yeah. I'm telling you... You fit right in. (laughs) the, The toughest thing for me to cook, and I'll go on record on saying this, is a morning cup of tea for my mom. I am more nervous making that than a seven-course meal for 200 people. Because that cup of tea has to be the best cup of tea she's ever had. And she will check. She will have glances, glimpses once in a way to make sure I'm doing it right. Yeah, for those just listening, uh, the look of seriousness on his face is very genuine. (laughs) She's really serious about her tea. Oh my God, she is. So, I mean, the food culture in India, I mean, just has to be a lot different. I would imagine that industrial agriculture is not something that is prevalent there. I mean, what type of food culture is there around um, the it's food really, production? It's 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 unfortunately getting to be more mass-produced just because the availability and the ease of getting produce from a um, uh, from a market or from a from a bigger grocery store is getting there. But otherwise, food is locally grown. Food is grown hmm. by small pe- small businesses, just individuals have, uh, you know, they grow vegetables and then there's a corner store in which they come up in that morning and they're gone by the end of the day. So you go in, pick what you want and then st- start cooking from there. Shop a day, right? Shop a day. So was it like in the morning, you know, it's just kind of like, you know, customary that everybody stops by the 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 vegetable and produce and yes. picks it up? Yes, it's it, de- it depends, you know, it's sometimes... Uh, uh, the woman of the house does it sometimes. The man of the house has to pick up grocery on the way back. And that's what's used oftentimes. Yeah. I, do you think um, maybe maybe America could benefit from more of the that that local? I mean, it, it used, I remember my, grand, my grandfather, for instance, you know, he knew exactly where his pig came from and where all of his vegetables came from. And it just seems like, you know, in the last few decades, there's been a tremendous shift since the industrialization, especially here in Memphis, yeah, we're in yeah. the heart of like the best farm country ever, but 
you know, it's almost all industrialized, which has a big impact on our food quality. So I bet Correct. your food was great. In terms it was of- also, uh, you know, you don't realize that now you look back upon it, you know, waste uh, is the worst thing that you could do. I would get whooped if I had wasted food on my plate. So you have this concept where if I don't need, you know, a, a whole pound of potatoes and I just need a few, that's all I'm going to get. So I'm not going to waste the rest. So helping stop waste is a huge thing. Yeah. A, from an income perspective, you don't want to waste money. But at the same time, you don't want to create too much waste. Yeah. So it it made it very specific and very involved. It wasn't, a, you know, I'm going to make mashed potatoes on Thursday. I'm going to make, you know, uh, pork chops on a Saturday. And you don't just get all of that one time and just prepare. You, you take it as you go. Mm-hmm. So the culture is very different, and it's different in different parts of the uh, of the country. So India has it's like twenty three different countries, different languages, different. Oh, that's a lot to navigate. Talking about going global, that's hard just to be local. But it's fun. It's yeah. fun because you don't know what you know. You go to another part of this of the country, and you get completely different food, but it's all flavorful, so you enjoy it. Yeah, that's that's interesting. It's, it does seem too like there has been a lot more you know, mindfulness in the Mid-South, especially from some of the more progressive chefs in town that are being a lot more specific about where they're sourcing, yep. you know, all of their product. We see a lot of that on Broad, you know, and all the guys down there and uh, like CMUS, the new restaurant. Is it CMUS, right? Yeah. It is CMUS. Yeah, I know they're very, uh, we did a lot of work with them and talked yep. with them and that they've really spoken out. I mean, there's a lot of emphasis, it seems, kind of going back to our roots of that food production and, you know, it speaks for itself. Yeah, quality. it's like, you know, what grows together can be eaten together has got the same philosophy. So if you've got greens growing in here by the abundance, which they do, then you're going to do something with it. And you're going to make it really nice because if you're going to have the same stuff every week, then you want to make it slightly different. And I feel that's how flavors have gotten to local food. Mm-hmm. So you can get out of the way and just, you know, make the minimal amount of effort onto your vegetable, but it'll taste the same every time. So just different flavors is, that's my philosophy, Mm -hmm. but absolutely there's there's a lot of, uh, I know farm to table is much widely used term, but we are serious about it here. Mm -hmm. I I literally see that happening where you're concerned about where you're getting, there are a lot of CSAs that are coming up. Yeah. Um, Great way to engage, just go, go to the local farmer's market. You know, there's one every small town that we have here. Uh, the Cooper Young one uh, at here, and then the and then the one downtown, they're really great places to go in and seriously see how you'll see chefs walking in there. Oh yeah, and that's when you know that they're kind of serious. Yeah, one thing I know you you touched on briefly too was the relationship with the butcher. Yes, because meat is a much different <laughs> experience. So for for those that might be unfamiliar, what was that? What was that about? How was that? Well, uh, you know that there are more vegetarians in India than there are. Americans oh, living wow. here. I did not know that. Yep, population. Then Americans living here. Yeah, then yep. Then the entire. Is that like three hundred fifty million or so? Like yeah. Like well, a percentage of a percentage of one point three still pretty large. Yeah, fair enough. And uh, there are states which are a hundred percent vegetarian almost. A non a meat restaurant serving meat will probably not be successful in some some parts of the country. Meats uh, kitchen have to be different from vegetable kitchen. So meat is a prized commodity, and I thankfully come from a a community that loves to have meat, but we still have it maybe once or twice a week. We're vegetarians for the rest of the time. So when we had to get meat, it was a project by itself. You had to know when to go, which door to enter from, how to speak to them, what not to say to them, you know, uh, dress conservatively, be respectful. And we'd be like four hours just talking about that. I was like, when are we going? It's like, no, no, this is really important. Only so butcher, and... butcher was family. Butcher was God. <laughs> <laughs> Forget family. We had a little shrine for our butcher in our house, which we had to prepare and just make sure you, whatever happens do not mess with your butcher. Yeah, it sounds like that was the guy to be then. He, that was, it was a tough life, but. <laughs> so if you, if you upset him one week, would you get the lesser of the cuts? And it's not just uh, whether you get the, it's a generational curse. <laughs> if you piss a butcher off, every generation after you is cursed. They, they, oh, no. You know, people think I'm joking, but literally, you know, people talk about, dang it, man, I pissed off the butcher. Now he hates me. 
And now every time I go there, you know, I push back to the line. I get these cuts of meat that I don't like, and I'm telling him. And so it's 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 true. Yeah. And it's uh, it's something that I I realized happened, and then I appreciated meat even more after that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that that's it's it's interesting to to see the roots and kind of hear this side of it, but also <laughs> see what you're doing now. I mean, what you um, have put together, you know, this kind of the history, like we just said, but cooking for a cause and basically how you've taken the experiences in your life up until this point and how you're putting it out there for other people to experience because ultimately, you know, big chef and that's what it's all about is sharing your food, sharing your culture. Um, so tell us, you know, for those who are unfamiliar, there are a lot though that already have already, <laughs> have already experienced your food. That's good. Um, what you're, what you're doing, what, you know, where you're doing it. Let's, let's, let's go into cooking for a yeah. cause because this so, is a big one. So, you know, you clearly know, clearly you can see food is a passion and I'm so involved in it. Uh, I just wanted to do something with it. Uh, you know, you can feed people and feed friends and feed family, but where does that go? I mean, who has ultimately benefited? Yeah, us, but as a larger group or a community, has anyone benefited? And uh, I've already said several times, you know, dogs are one of my first loves. I, I always had dogs around me uh, and I do have three dogs now. So how do I combine the two, right? What can I do? Uh, I thought about going to soup kitchens, but then it wasn't feeling like I'm creating that experience. I was just part of a line, an assembly line that had to do what I needed to do. And I really wanted to help the canine community here because after I got my uh, dog from Colville Animal Shelter and another dog from uh, Compassionate Hearts Rescue, I really realized that this place needs help. The dogs are rampant. There is uh, little to no spay and neuter going on. And... For every dog that's not spayed or neutered, there are, I believe, 200 animals that get impacted because that's how they procreate and progress. Mm. So how do I combine the two? And that's how Cooking for a Cause came about. was trying to take my passion for causes and my food, hence the name is quite logical, Cooking for a Cause. Yeah, well, I do want to, I want to put you on the spot a little bit because you told me the story of uh, when you were young and you were going to school and you had your, your lunch. <laughs> Can you share the story? Can I put you on the spot? Because oh, I feel like it ties in perfectly. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's certainly bringing back memories. Um, man, I did talk a lot that day, didn't I? I uh, <laughs> hey, I've, I've gotten to know you over the last few months, and I got a, I got a good memory. Uh, well, this kind of uh, it hit me now. It didn't hit me then. But, um, uh, you know, you wait for your bus to come in in the morning to pick you up to go to school, and uh, your mom prepacks your meal, and you take it with you. And uh, stray dogs are a thing in India. There's a lot of strays. Strays are common and it's not something that you're going to freak out. Here, if you go down, you know, Poplar and you see a stray dog, you know, the traffic's going to come to a stop. Right. Everyone's going to... Now, there's hundreds of stray dogs in India and they just commingle and they live just fine. <clears throat> but uh, some of them are pretty emaciated. So, uh, while I was at the bus stop one morning... Uh, this dog came up to me and I became friendly and I saw how emaciated it was and I figured I need to give him something and I'm waiting for my bus. I'm not going to be able to go get any food. So I just popped open my lunchbox and I, I just fed uh, that that dog my lunch. And uh, uh, one of my family members saw me and I freaked out. I was actually nervous. I was like, oh my God, did I do something wrong? But later on uh, in the evening, they called me and they all sat me down and I thought I was going to get a hiding. But instead, they all just, you know, th they were very appreciative of what I did. So it was kind of a moment there for me. It's like, wow, you know, I mean, this makes a difference. Mm -hmm. Someone seeing this is going to take note of what's going on. You giving what you can and showing compassion to another creature has an impact. I never realized that. It was quite powerful because... Like I thought I was going to get scolded, but uh, they all really appreciated what I do. And I felt that I, I, that was my first cooking for a cause moment yeah. ever. I was fixing to say, I feel like that is absolutely the roots of, of what it's, you know, what it's become cooking for a cause. Like that, that story is something special. It is. It, and says, I, a lot, it says a lot about you too, as an individual, <laughs> you know, I just you love, love some dogs. dogs. I, I do, man. I mean, they're, they're, they're some of the best, uh, uh, best companions I've ever had. <laughs> So you um, started off, so let's go back to the conception of cooking for a cause. Did you start off just making like single orders and kind of putting that together? How, how did it evolve? So literally came up to me one day to just <clears throat> cook for five people. 
and uh, just I, I had to be humbled in that because I'd said on any other given day, I'd feed you this and I won't even balk. But could you donate some money for this food? And that uh, it was quite humbling to ask for money. Mm-hmm. But it felt great because the other side of the party was like, they were like, absolutely. So I had little boxes of food prepared for about five to six people. And I went around town dropping them off and they just handed me cash. And when was this? This was in 2016. Okay. Uh, early part of 2016, where I was doing things like, you know, just figuring my steps out. Okay, if I give you a plate of food, will you give me 10 bucks? <laughs> you know, right. that kind of way. And then... After I did that, the reaction I got from people was like, wow, I've never had this food before. Then I engaged with a, a rescue group that I became familiar with. And we began the idea of what if I cook in a restaurant? My first one was at Bangkok Alley. Okay, nice. Uh, and they, they was were, this in 2016 as well? This was in 2016. Okay. Um, just began cooking in the restaurant once and then invited a bunch of people. And then they began really enjoying it. They wanted to, They wanted to see how I can do more. And then um, I was uh, a pretty strong patron of the Cove on Broad Avenue. Mm-hmm. And I've always seen dogs there. And one day I just went and asked them, hey, if I, if I do this, can I have a pop-up restaurant? And they were like, yeah, but I said, it has to be for dogs. And they jumped on it. So from feeding people single meals to then deciding to take this into a bit of more uh, a restaurant, um, that's where the leap happened. And then after that, it's since 2016, that's how I've been. Yeah, that's a shout out to uh, to Mary and Michael and everybody up at the Cove who've been more than accommodating to me on separate occasions beyond just eating great food, um, your food. But there's great people doing some good oh, stuff and supporting some awesome things yeah, too. They're like family to me. So uh, I began doing it since 2016. It's been five years. I have done this for about 20 different rescues. I've raised about $92,000. $92,000. That's a big number. It's over a period of five to six years. So it's it's a fair degree of time. But yeah, so that's a lot of money that I felt uh, it's been, but I need more. You know, mm-hmm. my, my goal is to make a lot more money for dogs. Has it been kind of a, a, a struggle in any way to find the balance between just the objective necessity of having to get food supply and labor and just you know, all of that stuff together in order to actually turn a profit in these situations? Has there been any like, you know, logistical challenges? Oh, yeah. I mean, in the initial first four to five years, I've really not made, I lost mostly money on it, but I found that I have to make it sustainable. I have to also Mm -hmm. allow myself the respect by ensuring that what I do is sustainable. Right. And I have to value what I do as a human being. Just giving away things is fine, but, you know, Mm -hmm. I... Uh, worked on a business model that allowed me to see the sustainability of what I'm doing. And quite frankly, the sustainability is cost plus a little bit to invest back in the business so that I can have another pop-up. Right. So I'm not trying to make money by any form or fashion. I just want to keep this business sustainable and have a model that makes it thrive. And one day, you know, someone better than me can come and pick this mantle up. Yeah. And well, that's just back. like, you know, humans and our own emotional energy. It's real easy to give yourself away or, if, you know, some, some of us are just totally super giving and give, you know, all of it out. And then when the cup is empty, we're not able to actually exactly. be formidable people. So uh, taking the time to figure out how to make something sustainable is essential, not only for our minds, but especially for our businesses too. Yeah. Also, uh, the big thing about sustainability, I will tell you this is I felt that people are truly participating when they give as well, while I'm giving. Mm -hmm. And I think that communication helps me a lot. I understand that people who are ready to absorb the cost that I take up, you know, they're giving away few, (laughs) they're giving away money as well. So I felt connected. I felt more appreciated in the sense that I felt that they are connecting with what I'm trying to do. Yeah. The minute I started talking about sustainability as a business, I found a different mindset coming through in people. Mm -hmm. You know, the the good people will lean in. And the people who are meant to take advantage of you are just going to say bye-bye. And that's fine. Yeah. But that's what I liked is that using um, a sustainable approach also has got me surrounded by the right kind of people. Yeah, absolutely. When we came out to, um, you know, film some of your pop-up at the Cove, uh, we had trouble fitting the camera through the aisle. I mean, it was, I mean, people will see in the footage, but I mean, people were there. They were loving it. 
I think it was all fours rescue was there that day. That was yep. the particular, uh, charity that you were working with. And I don't think that there was anyone that was not smiling or enjoying good food or both. Well, you I know. appreciate that. It's taken a bit of time and work and a lot of people are behind the scenes, Brad. It's not just me. Mm-hmm. There's the line cooks who come and donate the time. There are people who come and gift me a dish and just prepare a dish for me to sell. There have been a lot of people along with me. Yeah. They've been taste testers. It takes a village, yeah. It takes a village. There've been people who drop everything and if I forget something, they can go buy stuff for me and drop it drop off, transport food, help clean up. There's a lot of people behind the scenes. Yeah. Um that actually need to be really recognized and appreciated. Yeah, I mean uh, we we'll see. We met Connor for yeah, sure. Connor yeah. was out there. You had you had a couple of younger helpers in there that yeah. night. That night in particular, right? Yeah, that's also another uh, you know thing that I'm trying to do is introduce people who otherwise would not have an avenue to mm-hmm. cook in a professional kitchen, but they have that passion to cook and they have the passion to feed people for the right reason. Why don't we tap into that? That is a person who wants to give, and there are causes that are ready to receive. We just have to connect the two. Yeah. So I've really encouraged other people who are interested and serious about cooking in the sense that you have to, it's an art form and a science and you have to respect it. So if you treat food with respect and you treat it with a giving, uh, kind, compassionate background, then I'm, I can provide you a platform. And that's what I've done. I've connected some really great people. One was a 13-year-old chef, mm-hmm. Chef Aman, who had an amazing passion for food. And all would, my job was to just introduce him to the patrons at uh, at the Cove, and it was magic. Yeah, they all loved what he did. He loves what he did, and I like to introduce people like that to come in and and contribute and be part of this journey. Yeah, it's not a uh, often uh, that you know, like a you know, a global business executive, someone who has such a you know extensive background in in, in business and working globally. Uh, to be have such passion and sincerity, uh, you know, in the kitchen, I think that that's a really special combination because it kind of combines a practical awareness with also a you know good food and a genuine desire to help people. It's just it's not often found. You have to know that, right? To some degree, <laughs> I, I try not to think too much about it. To be honest with you, I just go with my feel, and I know it sounds great. Now that you've just said that. I'm pretty feeling pretty awesome. It's like, really? Is all that? Yep. Yeah. Well, we had been filming just, you know, my experience, we'd been filming, you know, all day. We had been there that weekend at the Cove and we had shot a music video and we were excited to end the weekend with some of your pop-up food that was extremely delicious. Um, But I remember going back towards the end of the night, I was like, ah, maybe, you know, Chef Canal will be done here in a little bit. We can have have a beer and celebrate. (laughs) And you go back there and you're by yourself. It's like, you know, 11 o'clock at night and... Sorry, I'm putting you on the spot, but you're like, you know, you're like back there, hands and knees, scrubbing stainless steel, like, you know, mopping the floor. And I'm like, man, this guy has absolutely zero obligation to be doing this and to be a part of this. And not only that, but everything that he could have made and put into his own pocket is now going back into the community and, and the dogs of, of Memphis, you know, to to benefit from. And it's a really, really special thing that 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 Memphis benefits from, but also we get to eat good food while, <laughs> while we do it. I appreciate it, but I have an obligation to myself more than anything. I cannot walk out of a place leaving it bad. It's the same corporate philosophy, right? You're given a job. Your job is to make the place better after you leave. That is your simple mandate. And I do that at FedEx or try and do that at FedEx. Mm-hmm. Um, I have the same philosophy with uh, with the kitchen where I go to cook. If I walked in that kitchen and I leave that kitchen, that need that place better look better than when I walked in. Because people are trusting you. You've got Mary at the Cove just trusting me with the kitchen to go ahead mm-hmm. and uh, make something good out of it. I, at least I owe that to them to make sure that we do a good job cleaning. Yeah. And breakdown is where all the food is really made. Everybody talks about chefs and f- restaurants. I can tell you that the most important part about a food evening is the breakdown. Yeah, yeah. Prep, breakdown, all of it. It's, it, it's there's so much before and after. It's a sustainability thing. Mm-hmm. You know, you you are preparing the kitchen for the next person who walks in into the next shift, so that they can be really good at what they do. And I think it's the same concept. It's really about sustainability, and that's where I think if you know we focus on cooking for a cause and the way we're doing it, and thanks to forums like Station Eight is providing us to really connect and understand that. It's going to take a lot of us. Yeah. It's not going to be me. I can't do this by it's myself. A com- a, truly a community effort. I need people to help me. And I have no shame about it. I was reading this book where, you know, it's okay to ask for help. 
it is a-okay to ask for help. It's not going to be possible to do this by yourself. Mm-hmm. I can make a movie on my phone. It's going to look horrible. But someone comes and helps me out and makes this to something bigger than what I am. I think it, it really helps. So it's really reaching out, asking for help. I have no shame in asking for help. I will ask you for $15 for a pizza. Sure, I can feed you pizzas all day long when you come home. But that's not the point. I do want people to come in and I do want people to participate. Yeah, well, there is the, the charitable aspect, but there's also the truth that that pizza is every, every <laughs> worth every bit of $15. So that was, and actually touching on that, that was, uh, I know the butter chicken pizza, right? Is mm-hmm. that the, the coined? So that, that's got a little bit of a story. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, uh, according to Mary, maybe she mentioned this, that it was what connected you to Chef Russell Casey and kind of broke the ice of the Memphis culinary scene for you. Yeah, it was really interesting because when you do a pop-up and someone shows up and eats the food and... Chef Russell Casey from Bounty on Broad, which is another amazing restaurant on mm-hmm. uh, Broad Avenue. Uh, they He came in one day and just had a taste of the food and we began talking about food. There was really no concept of partnership. We just talked food and love for food. And one thing led to another. <clears throat> excuse me. And then um, I had my mom in town and I wanted to do a Mother's Day special. So Russell trusted me in talking me through what uh, we could make together and uh, I did a Mother's Day special at Bounty and Broad and uh, we prepared a five-course meal and one of the things that we prepared was using the sauce that I use on the butter chicken pizza to make an eggplant lasagna mm. and it was a magical moment. These, these moments happen in kitchens, you know, when someone makes something and you're cutting into it and everybody stops and just smells and everyone's excited. So yeah, that, that lasagna was awesome, um, you know. Uh, Chef Russell Casey and I both came up with the concept. We we worked together on thinking what we should do, and then it was on the it was on the menu. Yeah, not only that, but I'm pretty sure Memphis was that Memphis Flyer top ten the eggplant lasagna. Yeah, the Memphis Magazine. You're being actually, humble over here. I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna put a spotlight on it. Memphis Magazine uh, voted for the top ten dishes in okay. in in Memphis, and uh, the eggplant lasagna from yeah from a home cook chef whatever you call it. And a professional restaurant made its way to the top 10. So it's possible. It's mm-hmm. possible. Someone out there truly believes in that dish, truly believes that this is amazing. You know, connect, reach out. If that's really what it is, if it's if it's going to be that good, it could be in a restaurant. Mm-hmm. It has been. My food's been in a restaurant working with uh, Russell Casey. So it's possible. Yeah, absolutely. So what do you think would be... I feel like it's got to be kind of interesting sometime towing the line between, you know, executive life and, you know, business life and also having such a passion for cooking. Do you have like in your mind somewhere like in the future or whatever, you know, some some combination thereof or one or the other? Is there any any preference there or like any ideology behind it or are you just kind of taking it day by day? I'm just taking it day by day. One thing I do know is that I love my job at FedEx. I really do. I really enjoy showing up and uh, every day and doing what I love to do. Um, I do love to cook as well. You've been uh, doing that, that the, the global consulting and global work and business analytics, all that side. You've been doing that for majority of, of your life yes, right, at this point. Yes, yes. Majority of my life, that's what I do. And um, I love doing it. So I don't mm-hmm. see myself really. I, I like where I am right now in doing this. I just like to do uh, the cooking for a cause a little better. Right. And I'm trying to improve my business model. I'm trying to improve cost management. I'm trying to improve logistics. I'm trying to improve marketing. There are several aspects of the business that I will always uh, need to improve. And I want to focus on that. Sure. I really want to make this meaningful. So, Well, it seems like a really stable, continuous progression just Bingo. since 2016, starting yep. off with single orders, five people, to now filling out the cove you know, two or three times over and figuring out how to make that sustainable you know, financially and just with all the good food and everything being consistent. Correct. Uh, there's a lot of evolution there that's already pretty apparent. But that's cool to see how – I mean, what do you – um, see as the future for cooking for a cause in terms of what you would like to offer the community? Well, first, I want to be vulnerable enough in telling you that I don't know everything about the business. I am learning as I'm going, and I'm pretty comfortable in exposing the fact that I do get nervous about this business on how it will sustain itself or not because it's meaningful, and I, and I, and I believe in it. Mm-hmm. So as far as its growth goes, I see, I also have a catering part of this business, which sort of helps fund a lot of the charity events that I do. So I really hope to uh, 
expand into the catering business a lot more. I was going to say, we got to extend, you know, expand on that a little bit because that's a way that really anyone can experience this outside of just the once a month pop-ups. Absolutely. So I have a catering business that I do different kind of meals all the way from fine dining. We've done seven course meals in different places for birthday parties, for celebrations, just cooking for people. And uh, that business has a lot of creativity naturally because I'm not confined by just what I can do with my pop-ups. And that helps a lot to sustain my uh, my charitable cause. So everybody who partakes in a seven-course meal or a five-course meal or even a buffet is helping my business grow in the other side of things. And uh, I have, uh, I take orders, you know, I can, like I said, I can do Indian food. I do a lot of fusion food. Mm-hmm. That's really my passion. But of course, I cook French style food as well as Italian why, style why, food. So, so passion, why? Because, you know, there are things that people here haven't eaten. They haven't experienced certain flavors. And if I just go ahead and give you a really complicated sounding Indian dish name, it's going to be intimidating. But there are flavors and elements of it that I would love for you to experience and experience in a more, f- in a more friendly and a more easy way. So the, the tool that I'm trying to use here, and I'm going to just try and give you food with Indian flavors in it, it changes the way you eat. It changes brain connections in your head mm-hmm. and what you can expect from that. It opens up your mind and your palate. It opens up your mind and palate. And again, I have that uh, taste memory of, of where I came from. So I can always go back to that and really... You have a very powerful capability to do that. (laughs) I do. I can remember things... You can take a bite out of something. I've seen you. You're in another world. (laughs) Yeah, I still remember my... Like I said, I still remember the first bite of salami I've ever had in my life. That's incredible. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's really interesting too because like the food that we had that night at the pop-up, we had the sliders, we Mm -hmm. had the pizza. Mm -hmm. um, And it was, it was kind of a perfect blend because, you know, I have a very... You know, I hate to say it, I have a plain palate and I've grown a lot and I'm getting there and I'm constantly trying new things. I want to expose my palate to development. Um, but it's been a challenge for me growing up in the South, you know, like, you know, get different and healthy food, not always been a part of the picture for me growing up here. Um, but, you know, learning these things and having the experience like, hey, here's a slider, you know, <laughs> yeah. so like, tell, tell me about the slider because the people like, you know, yeah, that, that, those are great. And the, the, the butter chicken pizza, I mean, the veggie pizza, the I mean, everything. So that's part of uh, the sliders are actually thanks to uh, Asma Rafiq, who is a partner who works with me in this. Okay. And it was her son who also helped with the thing. So sliders, as we know, are great bar menu. And Mm -hmm. uh, where she comes from and what her upbringing is, and I'm speaking for her, but she comes from a place where that those dishes are really revered and it's serious, serious work. So, when I knew that that's kind of some of the food she's producing, we just brainstormed. I said, the best thing to do would be put it on a slider. So it's not my dish. It's someone else coming into the kitchen, but participating in my journey and helping with it. So that's really a big shout out to her and her son. They've leaned in as well. They've committed to coming as best as they can for different events. So yeah, so that came from them. But back to the concept is if I ask you to have a nacho was that do you have you you obviously have a concept of it you know that i can have a nacho or a pizza or -hmm. a sandwich those are very approachable things that you can order and those are not completely alien to you you don't you know what you're going to get definitely but once you order it the flavors that are going on top of it that's when i come in Mm. and that's where i'm going to introduce to you flavors that you thought you were having a pizza you're still having a pizza but completely different flavors. No just plain baked chicken. You're going to get tandoori chicken. Instead of just a regular marinara sauce, you're going to get the sauce that I make. Things like that. So easy, approachable food is part of my pop-up. And that's what makes it easy for you to come in. That's why people come in because they may not... How many of us go to an Indian buffet but need some Indian friend to join us when we go to the buffet? Have some context. Yeah, it's like, (laughs) hey, what am I eating? You know, can you tell me what is... This is great, but what is it? And I'll give you a long-sounding name. You're not going to remember it. So then it's intimidating. Like, oh my God, if I go to the Indian buffet, what am I going to eat? I wanted to break that. I was like, how do I get that same flavor but beans and rice or a burrito we all love burritos but what if burritos were filled in with 
Indian spices and paneer and Indian red beans and Indian rice. I'm hungry. <laughs> <laughs> we can fix that pretty quick. <laughs> I do know how to cook, so I can take care of that. No, that, that's great. And I mean, you, you just mentioned it, uh, but the tandoor that, that we, that, I mean, you're not just, you know, great chef and, ha- you know, have wide cultural knowledge, but uh, you're crafty. So the tandoor <laughs> oven, uh, just, we can give it, we, we give us a brief explanation maybe of the tandoor because it was a really, honestly, a special thing. I was there yeah. with you and we filmed it and there's a nice video on the Memphis Mushroom Festival page, which we'll talk about in a minute, but um, it was really unique and cool to see something that's so such an ancient process come together, and it was like competing on the level of green egg. <laughs> yeah, like we all know green eggs, but none of us want to spend you know two grand on them or whatever. Yeah, but uh, that was like a hundred bucks and was even better. Yep. So, so the tandoor, what's going on there? Well, we've uh, we all know tandoori food is usually what people refer to with Indian food. Well, it's not. In, it's actually not Indian. It's from Afghanistan, and it was. Uh, it used to be a hole dug in the ground and would be plastered and then they would stick meat in it and it was because it could retain heat and very fast very high but really retain heat and from there it came out of the ground became mobile and then went into restaurants so and different uh, roadside eateries in india so when i looked at trying to recreate i wanted to i want to have an authentic tandoori experience those are like two and a half thousand dollars and they uh, just not worth it. I mean, I, then I began researching what can I do to build one? And there's a lot of material on YouTube. A lot of people can go ahead and research that by themselves and see what they did. And I did exactly the same thing. Uh, I don't know my tools and you personally know. <laughs> you know hey, that. We all, we all learned something that day. We all learned some. What was it? The reciprocating? Uh, the, well, that was the hammer drill. The hammer drill. See, we, were, I, we were doing it old-fashioned with the battery, you know, and I was like, oh, let's try this. Yeah, you know? see? So you learn. That's what you're here. I you're, learned a tandoor. You learned a hammer drill. We're coming together I, and making it even better. Exactly. I'm, I I learned what a hammer drill is, and thank you for that. Yeah, and that was what, about so much 10 easier. seconds versus about 10 minutes? Yes. Live and learn. Live and learn. But I think that's really what it was. It was how do I – I looked it up. It's YouTube found out what you can do to make it at home. And then when I looked at the cost, it was ridiculous. Like I said, I also, uh, you know, I, I participate in barbecue competitions, both compete and judge. So I know a thing or two about how important your grill is. Mm-hmm. What kind of smoker do you have? Is it's an offset or vertical smoker? What kind of insulation you need? So I have seen that world of how serious that is. And I took that same seriousness, even making a simple tandoor. Mm-hmm. Well, but, it showed. I mean, those were beautiful skewers of seasoned lamb and just going in and, and cooking and yeah. coming out. It was very communal, too. Exactly. And that's what it is. It is actually a communal thing in, uh, in, in my country, in India, in the northern parts of the country. You'll have a tandoor at the corner of every neighborhood. And there would be people who come and cook in that one common oh, wow. oven. And... Uh, you know, people bring their bread dough and then just slap it down and make their bread, put in skewers of chicken and make that. And that thing is hot. When we fired it up, it was about 1,000 degrees. Now, the irony is the next morning, it's about 400 degrees still. Still, yeah. And then people cook different kinds of food overnight. So they leave things like eggplant, which is, uh, you know, covered with spices, and they leave it at night and they come up in the morning, your slow cooker is done. I mean, it's like a slow cooker. So it's a very uh, engaging, (laughs) so to speak, uh, experience. And I just wanted to, you know, to show people this is what I, this this is what, this is where I came from. Yeah. There's a really beautiful video on the uh, Memphis Mushroom Festival page. If you haven't followed it, then please do that. That actually has, you know, full visuals and a breakdown of kind of the process you use. Correct. Uh, to go through that, so that was that was that was a fun day. That it was, a was. Good time. angle grinders and hammer drills <laughs> and vermiculite and yeah. Um, but you know that's um, a good thing to bring up. I think at this point is you're one of the main proprietors and people that's putting together the Memphis Mushroom Festival. So that's we good. we had we had a podcast a few months ago with Jessica Shea, and that was kind of um, I guess in the preliminary stages of setting up the second year. And since then, there's been a lot of evolution and there's been a lot of momentum even just in the last month as we get closer to the date of the Memphis Mushroom Festival, which is what, this October? Yep. uh, 21st through 24th. Um, But 
tell me about your involvement in the Memphis Mushroom Festival. What has inspired you to be a part of it and to help make it happen and maybe some of the, the culinary program for it? Yep. Uh, Brett, the irony is that we're almost on the anniversary of how this was conceptualized two years ago. Uh-oh. This was uh, at Telluride, which I'm leaving for tomorrow, by the way. Have we're fun. going to the Telluride Mushroom Festival, which is the premier event. Yeah, that's like the biggest one in the world. That is Paul the biggest Stamets, one. All, the, all the big. All the big ones. Yeah. You're going to have Paul Stamets, William Padilla Brown. You're going to have Chad Carter. So you're going to have a lot of people out there. The who's who of... Uh, the mushroom world. Mm-hmm. So Jessica, me, and uh, Lawrence, we were just foraging and truly enjoying that experience. One of the best experiences I've ever had. Beautiful weather, beautiful locale, and finding porcinis and chanterelles and finding aspen bullets and things like that. And um, Lawrence just had the idea. I was like, why don't we do something like that in Memphis? And between the three of us, we're like, why not? The other reason was actually when we were we were in a class and they were trying to teach us how to inoculate logs. And in that class, they were talking about you need extreme humid weather. You need sun, but you need rain once a week. It needs to be warm. Temperature of the ground should be around 60 degrees. The outside temperature, 85. And Jessica and I were looking at each other it's like, that's Memphis. What they're talking about, ideal conditions about mushrooms are where we come from. So it made a lot of sense because when we'd go forage, we would find chanterelles the size of your palm. And here we were celebrating a little bitty chanterelle at, at uh, Telluride. And we're like, my God, we, 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 we're sitting on a gold mine. Yeah. So the land that we are around is so rich and it's so uh, optimal for mycelium growth that we felt that it was the right thing to do. I love the um, uh, part of where I can incorporate mushrooms into my culinary world. And that's really a lot of my focus on. I really want to make this program accessible. We had a wonderful first year. It was a communal event. We were making maitakes and hen of the woods and I mean chicken of the woods and all these mushrooms that we foraged, we'd put it into a large pot and I'd make like a coconut stew and people would come in and enjoy that. So it felt really nice. So I think we're going to do that this year as well. And we're going to try and make that a great success. Yeah, I think it's something too that just fundamentally supports all of the right things that this region and part of the world, you know, could benefit from. Going back to what we were talking about earlier, just in terms of sustainable, sustainably focused agriculture and bringing people together to share their talents and having, you know, more communal events where people can be, you know, respectful and receptive to other ways of of doing things and cooking, you know, all, all, all the above. I think it encapsulates all that. Um, so it's been it's been really cool to see that kind of evolve and and know, know that it's only in its second year yeah. and last year I'm you know a bit of a challenge yeah uh, this year might be as well um, you know a lot of things are still kind of shaping up to be what they'll be but crazy times in the world yeah um, but Ooh. you never know you never, we never know. know yeah but. That's a, that's a, I know the chef's event that we did in May, that was all Memphis chefs um, coming together to celebrate mushrooms and mushroom cuisine. And it was all extremely well done, extremely well presented. Uh, chefs from all over Memphis were there to, to participate and appreciate. Yeah. Uh, I think that's the part that I wanted to kind of also showcase is that chefs here truly, truly do like to work with local products. Mm-hmm. And they really want to showcase those products. I just had to introduce them to a few other people who were introduced and, you know, who love foraging and love to, uh, you know, just saute mushrooms with with butter or salt and pepper, but make sure that they understand that that's what's possible. So if you look at the footage and you look at what we did with the culinary festival kickoff, we introduced five local chefs. They each sought their own passion for what kind of mushroom they want to work with. And showcased what they're all about. I mean, how cool is that? You just have to introduce people to together. It was awesome. And I think that's what's really Mushroom Festival is all about. It's connecting people with each other. Yeah. You're introducing a mycologist who's extremely intense about the science of things to someone who forages and can find mushrooms for them, to people who like to go on a hike, to people who like to eat the foraged mushrooms, to cooks who like to cook those foraged mushrooms, to people who want to eat and buy that food. You've literally created a community through one act of just connecting with nature. Yeah. So I think we want to do, it's this, It's amazing when you make connections with people. I think that's a great, great feeling. So that's what we're trying to do with Mushroom Festival. And um, 
the feedback that we have and the help that you guys have given us is just second to none. Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely not shy about saying that Station 8 you know, productions, we're, we're an audiovisual creative studio, but a big emphasis of what makes this possible is Memphis and the city at large. So going back and trying to emphasize things that make it better is a natural thing. And that when we, when we encountered that, it was a no brainer. <laughs> so it was a lot of fun. The food was delicious. The people were, uh, it was a, such a broad range. It was a very broad spectrum of human being from all backgrounds and lifestyles yeah. and, and, and differentials, but everybody was unified on, on the, the communal aspect and the good food. It was a, it was a great time. We had a blast doing it. Yeah. So you see, there's a theme going on. I love people with diverse backgrounds to come together, find some commonality, whether it's dogs or mycelium. Mm-hmm. It still is a point that we can all speak the same language and connect with each other, just connect with what we're trying to do. I mean, how blessed and lucky are we to meet Station 8? And, you know, enough of shout out to me. What a huge shout out to what you guys are doing. And the fact that. that you guys are leaning in with your soul is amazing. We hardly knew that there were people like this around. So a big, big shout out to what you guys are doing. And the way you lean in and trying to support what you see is worthy of supporting. I wish people can see that. And I think that's, that's again, sustainable. Mm-hmm. I think that's really what I'm talking about. Lean in, support each other. You may not find exactly the right connection, but there will be something else that you can lean in and find connection. That's right. There's a lot of people that I think share that mentality, but it's really easy to get lost in all the negativity that we're, you know, sprayed with, with local news and and, and beyond. There's a, there's a lot of reasons not to be happy or not to enjoy something mm-hmm. around here, but there's a lot more reasons as to why they're, why you should be and, yeah. and, and, and should be fulfilled. If I can just take a second, I'll tell you the first time I started my pop-up, and of course, you come from where friends just love everything you cook. It's like, oh my God, this is phenomenal. Where can I get? You expect success overnight. It is not going to happen. It takes years. Mm-hmm. And I found this the hard way because, you know, success and your vision cannot be instantaneous. It's going to take people and time and you're going to meet people in your journey. They're going to help you. So that it made sense for us to collaborate with Station 8 now because we've, we've done the work. I've, we've all put in a lot of hard work. Mm-hmm. So I just want to give, you know, anybody out there thinking, oh, pop-up, it's going to be amazing. I'm going to have lines out of the door. Nope. There are days yeah. where there's no one. There, there are days where people will sit out in the rain and eat because they love the food so much. Yeah. But... I've, uh, I've heard the stories of the sellouts too, you know, where it's it's all gone before, you know, eight o'clock, nine o'clock. Yeah, we're selling out a lot of food. So please, the next time we have a pop-up, really would love for people to come in. Well, so as we wrap up here, um, what does the future hold for Chef Kanal Jadhav? Is it, is it food, charity, business? What is what, what do you, any big ambitions or anything like personally, professionally in food beyond? What's What's the future? Well, I want to make Cooking for a Cause a successful business only because I want to prove to myself more than anybody that if I take up a cause that's not otherwise commercially just a big bang wow. I don't have a new widget or a a, a tool that I'm selling that overnight is going to make this success. But I still want to make, make it successful. How can I ethically make this successful? That's why I'm exposing everything off like I need help. This has to be sustainable. This has to be financially viable. My vision is for catering um, gigs and for pop-ups to continue. I want cooking for a cause to hit a million dollars of dollars served for for different uh, purposes. And of course, it's lofty, and but that's why it's a goal. Well, I really you're already almost a hundred thousand in charity donations. You're already almost, you know, that's a big chunk. It is. It's a small step, but <laughs> I really want to make this a million dollar enterprise in terms of the money served, not in the money sold, but. You know, I want to help the community by putting that much out there right now. And the future is, who knows, but I'd love continuing exactly what you said. You know, love working where I am, love doing my pop-ups, love doing catering gigs. And I think I, I know personally that all of this is possible, but with the right people. I want to grow a team. I really need it. I would love my team to be there to help and make this. I'm not going to make it by myself. So that's really what I'm hoping. I'm hoping to create a larger team for Cooking for a Cause. So if someone wants to employ your services or be a part of your team or, you know, catering, pop-up, where can they find your information and how can they contact you? The best way to contact me is uh, through social media. Okay. Uh, please go to Cooking for a Cause Memphis. There are other Cooking for it's a Cause. It's on Causes. Facebook, right? It's on Facebook. You can please follow me on Cooking for a Cause Memphis and 
once you follow me, you can DM me. And if you guys want to talk about a catering gig or you have a cause that you feel it is worthy to promote, please get in touch with me. I'm also, uh, I'm also, you can follow me on Instagram as well for cooking for a cause. Uh, and also you can follow me on my personal Instagram, uh, Kunal Jadav. And I'm, I'm here. I'm ready for, uh, for worthy causes. Perfect. We'll have all those uh, links in the description for those listening and watching. But with that being said, uh, Chef Kunal Jadhav, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for your insight, your inspiration, and also for everything that you're doing for the city and for the community and bringing people together and also cooking us good food. Thank you so much. Really appreciate you guys. Thank you so much. Brad. Likewise. One of these. One of these. <laughs> thank you guys for tuning in. Uh, if you want to check out any of our other content, you can visit our website at station8productions.com or our YouTube channel, youtube.com backslash station8productions. Thanks. <laughs>